Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. Good evening. Uh, This is a great opportunity for us to kind of get ready for Easter. Before there is a celebration on Easter, we have to remember the cross and what Jesus Christ has done for us and his death and then his resurrection. So I want to kind of, uh, first of all, welcome all of you who are joining us for the very first time to our Sunday or Friday gathering here. If this is part of your first time joining us, we welcome you. For the rest of us who are members in our church, we pray that this will be an encouragement to you, the Word of God. Uh, If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 23. We're going to be looking at, at the story about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 23, verse 32 to 38. And I'm going to talk about because of the cross, what does it mean? As you know, this whole Passion Week, we're using that one word with a blank, because. And today is because he died, because he died for us on the cross. And because of that, now he lives. And that's what we're going to be talking about on Sunday. So once again, in Luke chapter 23, verse 32 to 38. 38. And we're going to look at these six verses today and see what the Word of God has to speak to us about when it comes to Good Friday. I wanted to start off and ask a question as simply this. Has there ever been a time in your life where you really began to understand someone's love for you? Uh, Let me put it this way. Uh, There are a lot of people in our lives that do love us, whether you want to believe it or not. People who care. People who want the best for you. But sometimes we don't really understand that because our maturity or even maybe the way they've been expressing it to us is not the way we connect with that. But I'm wondering if there's ever a time where you actually began to understand fully that person's love for you. I would say there are a few critical moments in your life where you realize and understand the depths and the magnitude of your parents' love. That's, that's one of the first things that comes to my mind when I think about someone really loving me um, for who I am and everything that I've been through, I think about my parents. And I don't know if that's the case for some of you, but there will be several moments in your life before you pass away where you realize the magnitude of your parents' love for you. First of all, when you go off to university, That's when you realize, oh, I have to do the laundry by myself. I have to cook for myself. There's a lot of stuff that you slowly start realizing that your parents did for you and because they loved you during those times before you went to university. So if you are a university student and you haven't realized that by now that your parents do love you, you will. Don't worry. There's going to be some other moments that I'm sharing with you. But for some of us who have graduated from university, I think some of us can conclude, yeah, when I think about it, when I did go off to the university, I realized how much my parents did care and did love me. Another time that you will go through where you're going to come to this realization, if you haven't done so by now, is when you have your first child. Some of you are probably thinking, well, I hope I get married first, and I hope so too. But when you have your first child, you're going to realize the depth and the magnitude of your parents' love for you. I would even go as far as to say as soon as the baby is delivered and those sleepless nights come and you realize, wow, my parents went through the same thing with me or my older brother or my older sister, and that realization is going to hit you. And the first diaper change, you're going to be like, oh, my Lord, my parents really did love me to touch, you know, 
all that junk and all that stuff and wiping it and putting on a new diaper. So that's another moment. So if you haven't understood your parents' love and the magnitude of their love when you go off to college, it's okay because you're going to understand it when you have your first child. Now, some of us who might still not understand our parents' love, I think it's when they get old. And for some of them, they might be uh, terminally ill. And that's when you will come to the realization that, wow, they really did love you uh, after all these years. And I think the last time you will begin to understand the magnitude of their love is when they pass away. Because by that time, you're much older. You might be in your 40s or 50s or 60s even. And that's when you will realize how much your parents did love you as you learned to take care of them as you love them. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I know that some of us have a bad relationship with our parents and they haven't really shown you the kind of love that you wanted or you need to, you need to have experienced. So I'm not going in this blindly, but I'm just simply saying that no matter what kind of parents that you might have had, some of them just didn't know how to become parents or be a parent to you. But that does not negate that they did love you and do the best that they could. Also, I understand that uh, some of us might not have these kind of opportunities that I mentioned. You might not have a child. There's people who have a hard time conceiving and having a child of their own. Uh, There's some of us who might not be able to go through that phase of life. So with all that being said, I was just thinking about my own life, and I was thinking it was during the university years that I began to understand the magnitude of my parents' love. Uh, it was after my first wave of exams uh, during my freshman year, my first year in college. And it was a very difficult, you know, high school and college, much different. And I realized that as I was taking the midterms, I was the first wave of exams. I just did horribly. I don't know, just I couldn't focus. I couldn't study well. And I remember coming home to my apartment and just walking back to the dorm room. And as I was laying down on my bed, I, I don't know why, I just began in that moment, started thinking about my parents. I mean, there were other times where I thought about them, but this hit harder. I started thinking about the level of sacrifice. They had so much in Korea, and they gave all that up so they could come to the States and so that we could have a better life. And as I thought about that, I realized that how uh, many hours that they worked. And just even trying to gain a one day's wage, it was very difficult. And they were working in a very dangerous area and part of Chicago. And so as I was thinking about all this, I, I don't know why, I was just overcome with this sense of just gratefulness and a sense of like unworthiness that my parents actually loved me so much that they sent me off to college, they raised me up, they gave me everything that I needed, not what I wanted, but everything that I needed. And as I thought through this, I realized how grateful I was for their sacrifice. I'm wondering, what is it about understanding someone's love for you that motivates you to give your best or to even love them back? I want us to think about that this evening. So what is it about understanding and acknowledging and experiencing this kind of love that motivates us to either love them back or to do our best? And as I was thinking through this, I realized that it usually entails two things. The first thing is this, that it entails the realization of the cost of their love. When I think about my parents and how much they have sacrificed and the cost in which they paid so that we can have the life that we lived in Chicago, in the United States, 
Like that realization hit me like never before. So there has to be some realization of the cost that is involved in order to love us. The second thing is this, recognizing the unworthiness of the love that is being received by that person. So the person who's receiving the love, they begin to understand their unworthiness. Why did my parents give up a lot of things, even their future of their own careers, to come to the United States and start from nothing, to work at a place where, which in my mind, if I thought through it, having the education that they have, they gave all that up and they couldn't speak English, so they had to work in a blue-collar job so that we can have a better life. When I think about not only the cost that was involved, but the realization of my own unworthiness, that's when I realized, wow, that they have loved me tremendously. So I want us to pause here and think through that for yourself. Who are some people in your life that you think about and you realize that the cost of them loving you is very high? And also, when you think about your life and all that you have done or you haven't done, or maybe you rebelled or maybe you said things to them that you regret, and just realizing your unworthiness, that you weren't worthy of getting their love, that unconditional love, that they gave it to you anyway. And that's why what I wanted to do is I want to show you this video by David Okuna. He's a trauma surgeon. So he's a, he's a brainy guy. And he pretty much gave a description of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, the part that's really powerful about his testimony and the description about the crucifixion is he's a medical doctor. So everything that is described in the Bible about the crucifixion, everything that he knows about history, about the Roman government, and how they use crucifixion as a means of punishment— and understanding that in a medical aspect, it gave him a complete different view and understanding about the cross. In fact, it was deeper. And the understanding just went all the way down to his heart because he realized the cost that was involved that Jesus paid. As well as realizing that he didn't deserve any of this. So I want him to describe for you as you watch this, the medical reasons of the pain that Jesus went through. And then at the end, the question that was asked by the interviewer was simply, what does it mean to you in light of everything you know about the cross? And then listen to his response. So let's watch this together. You know, as I was watching that, I realized that because he has a medical background, it kind of hit him a little bit harder in terms of the pain that Jesus had to go through. But you don't have to be a trauma surgeon to understand as you sometimes look at how the Roman government used the crucifixion to torture and to ultimately execute criminals. And so can I ask you that same question? Is that when you think about the sacrifice of what Jesus Christ has done for us, like what does it mean to you? How does it affect you? How, how does it cause you to live your life now knowing that the sacrifice was immense and the pain that Jesus went through was excruciating? And I think this is what we have to reflect upon as we come to Good Friday. As I stated earlier, we will not have the joy and the celebration of Easter until we can understand what Jesus had to go through 
on Good Friday so that we can experience the forgiveness of our sins. I think for some of us, this idea of the cross is kind of like a foreign concept. You might have heard about it, but you don't fully understand it. Sadly, for some of us, we've heard it so many times that it doesn't move us. It's just another story about Jesus, and we have become very apathetic, and we're not moved anymore as we think about what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. But then there are some of you who just more recently, as you thought about your life and everything you've gone through in the past year or so, maybe the cross has more significance for you. Maybe when you think about who Jesus is and all that he has done, that there's a greater sense of gratitude that is growing out of your heart because of what he has done. But wherever you are, I believe that tonight we really need to recapture the significance of the cross so that we can understand the beauty of the gospel. It is through the grossness or the grotesqueness of the cross, the suffering, the pain, the agony, that as we begin to understand that, then that's when the gospel would become more beautiful to us. I love what Os Guinness said in his book, Prophetic Untimeliness, A Challenge to the Idol of Relevance. This is what he writes. He says this, In an age when comfort and convenience are unspoken articles of our modern bill of rights, the Christian faith is not a license to entitlement a prescription for an easygoing spirituality, or a how-to manual for self-improvement. The cross of Jesus runs crosswise to all our human ways of thinking. A rediscovery of the hard and the unpopular themes of the gospel will therefore be such a rediscovery of the whole gospel that the result may lead to reformation and revival. So that is my heart for all of us tonight, that as we ponder upon the cross and what it means for us, there'll be a rediscovery of this gospel message that is so dear to us that it will cause a reformation, a change, and a transformation and a revival in our hearts. May we tonight, as we think about Jesus and the cross and the sacrifice, that it will move us and motivate us to love him more than anything else in this world. So let me give us the one thing that I want us to share is simply this, is that Jesus provides our deliverance even in the midst of our ignorance. That Jesus provides our deliverance even in the midst of our ignorance. We're going to just jump right into the passage for today as we look at Luke chapter 23, verse 32 to 38. Uh, we talked about how Jesus provides our deliverance, delivering deliverance from our sin, even from ourselves, our self-centeredness, our pride. And he does it even though we are ignorant of the magnitude of our sin. And so what does he do? When we look into this passage, we notice two things. The first thing is this. If we want to remember just his deliverance in our lives, because even though we're ignorant of the things that we have done or we are doing, the first thing we have to understand is this. We have to remember our unworthiness. We have to remember our unworthiness. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 32 to 34. Listen to what it says in the story uh, of the Luke account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It says this, starting from verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. 
And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were crucified. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and the one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Let's pause here and look at these pas this passage. You will notice right away that Jesus is led to the cross along with two other criminals. And the reason why this is important, and you'll see this all throughout the life of Jesus, is because it is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. If you know your Bible, you will notice that the prophet Isaiah prophesied about this. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, I'm going to read it from the New International Version. If you see the yellow section, I want you to say it out loud with me. It says this, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. So those who are criminals, those who have sinned. It says, For he bore the sin of many and made in intercession for the transgressors. So here's a prophecy about Jesus that he bore the sins of those who sinned against God and he interceded for them. And so that's exactly what we see here in the Luke account. Now the place of crucifixion was called the skull. This is important for you to understand. The word skull in the Aramaic, it means Golgotha. And in the Latin, it has the same idea of the English word Calvary. That's why oftentimes those words would be changed in different gospel accounts, whether Jesus died in Golgotha, in Calvary, or the skull. And you will notice here, Golgotha was where Jesus was crucified. He was completely humiliated in a place where he was shamed. Now, the Roman government, and this is something that will help you to understand, because you could look it up and Google it on your own. It, it, is, it is a fact. This is what the Roman government did. They used crucifixion to punish criminals or insurrectionists who will come against the government. And the thing is that they have done it for many, many years that they began to perfect this torture and execution through the crucifixion. What they did was they learned how to prolong the pain. They made it as painful as possible to prolong the death as long as possible without going too long, just enough so they can suffer, the criminal can suffer, and then he can die. Also, you need to understand that they wanted this person who was being crucified to be a teaching, uh, a lesson for the rest of the people. If you do this particular act, then this is what's going to happen to you. That's why they would do it publicly so that everyone in the town or wherever that village or that city was where the crucifixion was happening here in Jerusalem, you will notice that they did it publicly so that every single person will see this crucifixion. And if you do the very thing that this person has done, then that's, this crucifixion will happen to you. Now, to think through that they were trying to prolong the suffering and to humiliate and to shame the person, you realize that this was not only a physical torture, but it was a mental torture, not only for the person who has been crucified, but even the family members who are often there to watch this public execution. You see this now today in some places in the Middle East where they actually hang or shoot people in the public square to teach everyone a lesson. That's exactly what was happening 
at this time. Also, I want you to note here that it's interesting that Jesus was in the middle, that there was a criminal on the right and a criminal on the left. Now think about the Olympics. Where does the first place person stand? In the middle. So they, it was almost as if to prominently put Christ in the center of this crucifixion with two other people. But I want you to know that these two were criminals. They were notorious criminals. They should have been the one that is front and center to teach people a lesson. But here's Jesus who was perfect in every way. That he healed and he ministered and he loved people. But because of the situation and part of God's fulfilling plan, we notice that he is now crucified in the center of this crucifixion. I think this is where we should be crying out injustice. What did Jesus do compared to these two criminals that warranted his execution? As I mentioned, he lived this perfect life. He knew no sin. He was completely different from these criminals, but he ended up dying a criminal's death. This is where we begin to get a glimpse of our sense of unworthiness of God's love for us. I love how Paul talked about it. We've been going over the book of Romans on Sunday. And I hope all these things are piecing together as you begin to understand, as we've been talking about the simple gospel, that sometimes we don't understand our unworthiness and that's why we're not able to appreciate the greatness of his love. And the more you understand the greatness of his love, you begin to realize how unworthy you are. There is no room for pride. There is no room for our own desires and what we want above God's will. And that's why in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and 8, I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. It says this, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So what Paul reminds us of is that we might possibly die for someone who is good. But to die for somebody who is bad, who treats us poorly, there is no way a person in their right mind would do that. And the thing that I want you to also note, why this death on the cross is so unbelievable, is because if you look at verse 34, you will notice what he did that was something beyond any human comprehension. Jesus ends up praying for those who are hurting him and who are torturing him. I want you to think about that for a moment. That Jesus Christ, he prayed for forgiveness for those people who were mocking him and who were torturing him and who crucified him. If there ever was an enemy of yours, that would be that person or those people. And what was the reason why he prayed for forgiveness and why he loved these people? Because his reason was simply this. They did not know what they were doing. They were ignorant. There was ignorance in the part where they did not see Jesus Christ as the Son of God. They did not see him as this, not just a rabbi, but the perfect Son of God who came into this world. 
and that him dying on the cross was part of the plan that God had so that people can have eternal life. You know, it would have made a lot of sense if Jesus prayed, Father, come and consume them with their holy wrath. So I want you to think about the criminal on the left, criminal on the right. Here's Jesus could be crucified. And in that moment, he could have called upon angels and he could have asked God to pour out his fire and his wrath upon the people. And he would have been justified because he's holy while these people were crucifying him. I was thinking about this and I go, this is kind of like what you feel. I don't know if you feel this, but I know I feel this. Uh, This is a little bit of what I feel when I hear these stories about these scammers who end up taking all this money from old people. Like you feel this injustice, like this is wrong. Here are these innocent old people who are now being scammed by these people who are claiming to be part of the government or the police or whatever it is. And so out of their ignorance, out of not knowing, they end up giving passwords and just the money. And later on, they find out that it was all a hoax. Like, I don't know how you feel, but when I I hear those kind of stories, I get so upset. I don't know if some of you might have experienced that in your own life. I also think about maybe those people who steal people's credit cards. Don't raise your hand, but I'm wondering how many of you, you had your credit card stolen. And you know it doesn't feel good. Or you might have lost your wallet or someone took your wallet. You understand that there's a sense of injustice and you're saying it is wrong. That's exactly what most of us would feel, if not all of us, in this moment. Why is Jesus dying and being crucified next to two criminals who are deserving of death while Jesus who was the perfect son of God did nothing wrong and he was crucified I want you to look at some of these pictures I don't know if you know who they are look at the first picture you will notice do you know who he is this is Bernie Madoff and he is the one who started the Ponzi scheme and literally stole billions of dollars and put so many people in their retirement and their pension completely out And so they have nothing to retire on. And there was so much anger. And it was interesting because he ended up passing away. His son ended up committing suicide. There were so many people who were so angry at him. Do you know who this next person is? Some of you are like, it looks like one of our church members. I I don't know. But if you look at this person, his name is Joe Lowe. He was a Malaysian, all right, get that straight, Malaysian businessman, and he ended up stealing close to billions of dollars, billions, billions of dollars from the Malaysian government as he tried to invest in it, but he actually took it for himself. They're still trying to find him, and people are so angry at the amount of money that has been lost by the government. Here's another person. I don't think I have to go very far, okay? But the thing is this. Look at this next picture. This is you. This is me. You and I, in many ways, are deserving of death and people's wrath and anger. But most of all, God's wrath and his anger. So when you think about all that you have done, and as you sinned against God, a holy God, it is so easy for us to forget who we really are. Why in the world would Jesus die for people like you 
a person like me. When you think about whether it's your thought life, the sins that you've committed, the sin of, of commission and the sin of omission, when we think about the way we live our lives in private and what we present ourselves in public, there's so many reasons for God to cry out, this is injustice. And that you and I deserve nothing but death and the wrath of God. And I think it would have been fair if Jesus prayed because he was the son of God, that he would have prayed that God would punish us, that he would destroy us. Because he was perfect. He knew no sin. He did not sin at all. And he lived a perfect life. And so thinking about Jesus dying on the cross, a criminal's death when he did nothing wrong, we cry out injustice, but then here we are. We're sinful. We have sinned against God, but we receive his grace and his mercy. I don't know about you, but if it doesn't move your heart, if there is a sense of un feeling of unworthiness, I am unworthy and undeserving of what Jesus, you have done for me on the cross, then I think many of us don't really understand ourselves nor do we understand the magnitude of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us as he died on the cross. I think the more powerful thing about Jesus' prayer about, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, is that this prayer is something that he lived out in his life. If you remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 47, I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. As he was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true, true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. For if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. That was one of the hardest teachings, even amongst the teachings at the Sermon on the Mount. To love your enemies. Because in the Old Testament... What the Jewish people were raised up in is that you were able to get vengeance upon those who have hurt you. And so now, like an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But here Jesus is teaching something radically different. To love those people that hurt you and who are your enemies. And I think the only way you can do that is when you're able to experience God's love. We talked about this this past Sunday, about people able and willing to forgive is only because of Jesus Christ. Because he modeled it. He demonstrated it. So when you think about his patience, when you think about his compassion, shown by his prayer of forgiveness for these people for they don't know what they're doing, we see here that their ignorance blinded them from understanding the gospel. Now, it's an interesting that Apostle Paul talks about how the secret and the hidden wisdom of God has been 
not shown until this time. And as he's speaking to the people of Corinth, listen to what he says. He says this. Now as he's declaring the gospel, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8 in the New Living Translation, he says, but the rulers of this world have not understood it. And read this portion with me. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. Do you see what Paul is saying? It was because they were ignorant because these religious leaders led them astray. But if they understood the gospel message, if they understood what God was trying to communicate, then they would not have crucified Jesus Christ. But if they have known, then maybe they have received Jesus. But I want to make something very clear. This does not mean that they were completely innocent. Nor because of their ignorance were they automatically forgiven. Because there's some of us who might be thinking, well then, I didn't know. Like, I, I didn't understand fully the gospel message. So God cannot send me to hell. God cannot punish me for my sins. But I want you to understand what the Bible says. Once again, we turn back to the book of Romans and we talked about this in the simple gospel. It says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 23 in the New Living Translation, it says, But God shows His anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because He has what? Come on, say this. Made it obvious to them. Some of you might be thinking, how did He make it obvious to us? And we will see here, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can what? Clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so that they what? Have no excuse for not knowing God. I want us just to pause here for a second. That when you think about all of creation and you think about the beauty of everything that is made, there's something inside of you that begins to wonder, like, is there a God who created all this? Or this, did this evolve just through evolution and through this creation that we see here is just all part of time that passes by. What Paul is saying is that when you look at the stars, when you look at the moon, when you look at the universe and you think about all the created things, you have to wonder like who created these things. And that's why he's arguing that you and I are without excuse. You cannot be ignorant and say, I did not know. Because every single one of us, we have no excuse of not knowing God. Look at verse 21. As he continues, he says this. Yes, they knew God, but they what? Wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think of foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead what? Became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people, animals, uh, birds and animals and reptiles. Do you see what's going on? It's that we have exchanged the truth of who God was and who God is for something that we create on our own, that we want to be God. And even Jesus talks about this, that none of us are innocent. None of us can claim ignorance. As many of you know, people say ignorance is bliss. Yes, for things here, but clearly, if you don't know the gospel message, it's not going to be bliss. You're going to face a Christless eternity in hell. 
And that's why Jesus talked about this as he was giving the parable about the kingdom of God. And in this parable, he's teaching that there are people who know. If you know the master's will and you don't do it, you're going to be punished with severe blows. And those of us who don't know, we're going to be beaten with less blows. But still, there will be punishment. That's why, let me read this for us. It says in Luke chapter 12, verse 47 through 48, it says, And that servant who, what? Come on, knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will be demanded the more. So this idea that no one is innocent. You cannot plead ignorance. That some of us do know it, but we just totally refuse. We think about the cross. We think about what it entails to be a Christ follower. And we blatantly disobey it says here that there is going to be punishment for us if we do not trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and we trust in ourselves. Some of you right now, you have been exposed to so much of God's love, to His mercy and His grace, but we are completely rejecting it, rejecting Jesus Christ. For some of us who might not have ever heard, once again, we're still not innocent because through the creation of the world and everything that's created, and think about this, this is the reason why God has placed that Christ follower into your life. This is the reason why you might be watching this at this very moment because God is trying to show you who He is. And so in the same way for many of us, I think this is the problem that we are ignorant of the enormity of our sin. Whether some of us, we think that we're not that bad, so we're better than this person and better than that person, we don't see the sinfulness of our own hearts. I think also for some of us, it is so easy to harden our hearts, to grow apathetic to the things of God. How many times has He has forgiven us, loved us, been patient with us, and still our hearts are not changed? We're not moved by that. And so in many ways, we're ignorant of the plans that God has for us and we choose ourselves rather than God. And unless and until we understand the unworthiness of this forgiveness that Jesus Christ has purchased for us on the cross, we will never appreciate the sacrifice that Jesus has made. I'm wondering if this is one of the reasons why some of us in our walk with God, it's not very intimate. I'm wondering if this is one of the reasons why some of you are struggling in your life because you don't really see the magnitude, not only of your sinfulness, but the magnitude of His love for us. John R.W. Scott Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, he writes about the gravity of sin and how it affects us. And listen to what he writes. He says this, Our sin must be extremely horrible. Nothing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. For ultimately, what sent Christ there was neither the greed of Judas, nor the envy of the priests, nor the vacillating cowardice of Pilate, but our own greed, envy, cowardice, and other sins, and Christ's resolve in love and mercy to bear their judgment 
and so put them away. It is impossible for us to face Christ's cross with integrity and not to feel ashamed of ourselves. Apathy, selfishness, and complacency blossom everywhere in the world except at the cross. I want to read that sentence again. Apathy, selfishness, and complacency blossom everywhere in the world except at the cross. There these disgusting weeds shrivel and die. They are seen for the ragged, poisonous things they are. For if there was no way by which the righteous God could righteously forgive our unrighteousness, except that he should bear it himself in Christ, it must be serious indeed. It is only when we see that, see this, that stripped our own self-righteousness and self-satisfaction, we are ready to put our trust in Jesus Christ as the Savior we urgently need. What a powerful reminder by John Stott. Until you see just the horribleness, the, the wretchedness of who we are, we're not going to be able to see the power of the cross. Some of you right now might be feeling very apathetic. Some of you are stressed and so consumed with school. You don't even show up for a life group. You don't even care. You don't even spend time with God. It's all about you. And can I just share something? And this is something that I've been sharing with college students for many, many years. And I'm going to share this with some of you. The, the wickedness of our heart is this. You have exams and papers that are due. But you had months to prepare but in your laziness, in your distraction, in your pleasure and consumption of things that excite you, that you procrastinate. And only when the pressure is there, then you realize, oh no, I got I to start working now. Then everything else goes out the window. Relationships with people, life group different things that you've committed to, your time with God. So instead of owning up and say, you know what? I'm a pretty sinful guy because I procrastinated and I did not put Jesus and life group and church and people and the things that I know that God has called me to do as a priority. Oh, I got to study now. I got to glorify God in my studies. You are a wicked liar. Because you had all this time that you wasted because you did not prioritize those things in your life. Same with some of us who was at work. I know some things at work are out of your control. Sometimes the boss will put things on you at the last minute. And oftentimes you might have to work at home to get it done so that you can maybe go to life group or do other things that you have been called to do. But after a stressful day, that's the last thing you want to do. So what do you do? You turn on Netflix and you watch another show and one hour, two hour, three hour passes by. And by the time it's midnight or one o'clock, you don't want to do anything. So you just go to sleep. And then you're more stressed at work. 
And then you say, you know what? I need to be a witness at work. I have to do a good job. You are a wicked liar. You had time to work on some of these things, but you just didn't want to. Because you did not prioritize those things that God has called you to do. It is that type of understanding of just our own frailty. And the way we make excuses for things to make ourselves feel better and to really be more presentable is the very thing that God is trying to say. And even in the quote that we just read, it's this kind of apathy and complacency that comes into our lives. That when you understand the cross, there is no room. Those things cannot blossom at the cross. Because you realize the wretchedness of your heart. You begin to understand the sinfulness of your life. And there's nowhere to turn, nowhere to go to. It's so easy to blame people in these moments. But we say, God, this is who I am. This, this, is, this is just my sinfulness in the way I am. And I, I need the gospel. And I need you. I'm just wondering for some of us, do you see your sinfulness when you see the cross? Do you end up turning to yourself or turning to Christ, trusting in Him? Especially during a times of failure or when there's a sin in your life. Do you cover things up? Do you, would you come humbly and say, God, I need your forgiveness? Confessing to people and say, hey, I need you to pray for me because I've fallen short. We must remember our unworthiness. I'm going to just finish off, if you allow me, to go to question number two. We're going to skip the huddle group. I want to try to focus in on this last point, and then we're going to do a time of response, which I think is going to be very important. So once again, Jesus provides this deliverance for us, even though in the midst of our ignorance. And so that's why we've got to remember our unworthiness, but I want you to also notice here that we must recognize our stubbornness. That's one of the first things that will help us to come to this point at the foot of the cross. We must recognize our stubbornness. Let's read verse 35 through 38 as we close out here. It says this, And the people stood by, watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is a Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. We notice that first phrase that says that they stood by. There were people who stood by. And what were they doing? They were just watching. And I realize it's always easier just to be a bystander and just to watch than to actually get involved and do something. Now the question is, could they have done anything? They would have probably died if they were trying to speak up for Jesus or one of the criminals or if they tried to stop the execution from happening. But I want you to think about this in your own life. How often are we just watching by? You look at your life group, and it's not growing. It's struggling. People are not committed. People are not growing. And what do you do? You just watch and watch by and see what's happening. Instead of rallying up with the leaders and saying, what can we do to help grow the life group? 
and so that people can experience the love of Jesus Christ. You think about some of the other situations you might have been in, whether at school or even at work, where there's injustice. And instead of speaking up, you just stand and just watch by and watch and see what's happening. I realize this is one of the issues in Asia, is that we don't want to get involved. We don't want to, we don't want to get up into other people's business. It's their own business. And in that sense of whether it's apathy or we just don't care or we are trying to save face, whatever the situation, I'm telling you right now that oftentimes part of Christianity is that you have to be courageous. You cannot just stand by and just watch. You got to speak up. You got to do something. Stop blaming people. Stop blaming your situation. I always tell people when you, there's something that you don't like, then what are you going to do about it? This is what happens all the time. People complaining about this. People don't liking this. Then what are you going to do about it? Well, people don't really love me. They don't reach out to me. Well, when was the last time you reached out to somebody? That just shows how self-centered you are because you think everything is about you and it's not. There's no obligation for people to do something for you. But maybe there is something that God is calling you to do so that you could then receive because it's more blessed to give than to receive. So here we see here as Jesus was being crucified along with the two criminals, one on his left and one on his right, we see here that there were people who were just watching by, who were standing and just watching. And I want you to look at the response of the rulers, the soldiers, and even one of the criminals later on in verse 39. We're not going to have time to read that. But you will notice they scoffed and mocked Jesus in the midst of the suffering and the shame that Jesus was going through. They were literally making fun of Jesus' pain and suffering. In fact, if you look at some of these translations, they were taunting Jesus. How were they taunting? Well, if you are the Son of God, all the things that you claim, then, then save yourself. Do something. In essence, these people were humiliating Jesus, and in their pride and in the hardness of their hearts, they were telling Jesus to do something if he truly is who he claimed to be. So I want you to see the irony of this. They were saying, prove yourself to be the chosen one. Prove yourself to be the one who claims to be the Christ. And it's almost as if they triumphed over Jesus. Now, we all know that feeling when you're in an argument with somebody and you know you're right. I don't know, some of you guys are like, I, I've never been in that feeling or that situation before. But I know this very well. When you are in an argument, you realize this person is illogical or you got them. It is one of the best feelings. Sinfully is one of the best feelings. Sinfully. Because you realize you could demolish this person. Because they have nothing to stand on. So you could kind of toy with them. Oh, so you think this. Oh, but it's really pride and your own stubbornness. In the same way, when you think about your life and there were some things that you, you said and then you were right. And all these people said like you, you weren't. But then later on you find out that you were. 
You're not humble. I know I sure, I'm sure not in those situations. I'm just like, your head it goes up a little bit higher. You walk with a little bit more strut in your step. And you realize that you are better than those people who thought differently. That's exactly what was happening as these people were watching and standing by. The soldiers, the rulers, and that criminal, later on you will notice because uh, the Gospel of Luke records the conversation. They were mocking him and taunting him and saying, if you think you're so great and you said that you were the Christ, do something. And this is where I think the irony, as I mentioned before, this is where the irony happens. What they didn't know is that by not saving himself and dying on the cross was the very way he was going to save the world. Because think about this for a moment. Was he the son of God? Was he the chosen one? Was he the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Yes. So he could have, as they were taunting, just demolished them. And they were like, okay, okay I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. I'm so, I mean, he could have done that. That's why as I was thinking about the story, I realized that Jesus has tremendous self-control. Even to the point of death. I don't know about you, but I would not have been able to do what Jesus did. If they're pulling out this little sword, ha ha, I would have pulled out a bigger sword, ha ha, and they would have been like, ah. It's that kind of feeling. But Jesus then, as he saw the sword, he said, I'm willing to die. But not putting himself down from the cross and dying on the cross in reality was dying for the rest of the world which then proved that he was the son of God and that he was the chosen one. Many of us have become an enemy of the cross. When we look at our lives, we're just like the soldiers. We're just like the rulers. We're always taunting God and saying, show yourself to be true. Prove yourself. Some of us who don't trust in Jesus, some of us who are struggling in our walk with God, we're asking God, do something, God. Instead of humbling ourselves and trusting and believing that he's so much wiser than we are, that he's so much greater than we are, we almost come off in a very stubborn way until you prove to me, God. And I will say this to you, he doesn't have to prove anything to you. He has already proven it by the cross. He, you have his word. That's all you need. But for some of us, in our stubbornness, in our pride, we're saying, no, that's not enough. Give me some more stuff. And I'm going to tell you right now, God has no obligation to you to do anything to prove himself. He's the Lord of the universe. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So why are we the enemies of the cross? It's because when we look at our lives, we do everything that these people have done to Jesus. Once again, going back to John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, he writes this, To be an enemy of the cross is to set ourselves against its purposes. Self-righteousness instead of looking to the cross for justification. Self-indulgence instead of taking up the cross to follow Christ. Self-advertisement instead of preaching Christ crucified. And self-glorification instead of glorying in the cross. These are all 
these all these are the distortions which make us enemies of Christ's cross. All these things. It's complete opposite of what the cross represents and its purpose. So every single time there's stubbornness in our hearts and there's pride in our hearts, there's self-righteousness in our hearts, there's self-sufficiency in our hearts, we turn to ourselves, we trust in ourselves instead of trusting in Christ. When there's self-indulgence, instead of learning how to have self-control, to love God, all these things typify and show us that we are enemies of the cross. I think the beautiful thing about everything that it transpired, even in this short part of the story, is that Jesus obeyed the will of the Father. Why? Because all of these things were prophesied in the Old Testament. The casting of the lots for the clothing was a fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 18. The mockery was fulfilled of the prophecy that was given in uh, Psalm 22, verse 6 through 8. And this offering of drink was a fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21. And I think the, the thing that kind of clinches everything is when you look at verse 38. We notice that there was a sign. There was a, a written note or inscription on top of that cross over Jesus. And I want you to notice that in that sign, there were three languages that were used to say that he was the king of the Jew. One was in Greek, one was in Latin, and the other was in Hebrew. All three of these languages were placed over his head with the translation of Jesus, the king of the Jew. Now, you might think that this is just an ordinary thing, but I want you to think about this for a moment is that the Roman government, what they did was writing these three languages in Greek and Latin and Hebrew, they wanted to make sure that everyone was able to read what the crime was. They also wanted everyone to understand, once again, if they do what this person has done, then this is what's going to happen to them. And this is the reason why when you think about the charge of Jesus being the king of the Jew written in three different uh, languages. The beauty of it is that God designed it that way so that the cross of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message will be preached to all the world, to all nations. And it's going to start in Jerusalem and it's going to ripple out to the ends of this earth. So in all of these languages were the common language of that time that covered majority of the world. What it declared out was that Jesus Christ was the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he's the King of the Jews. That was a proclamation. That is in the midst of our own stubbornness where we want to be the king, where we want to run our own lives. So once again, Jesus provides our deliverance even in the midst of our ignorance. So we have to see not only our stubbornness in the way we live, but we have to understand our unworthiness. When you begin to recognize and to see it in this way, that is when this cross of Jesus 
has significance for us. So the question is this, what do I do now? The first thing is this, let me give you some next steps. The first thing is to reflect on the cross. Spend some time reflecting on the cross, which we're going to do today. As many of you already received the communion elements, we're going to be taking communion together. So we want to take some time to reflect on the cross, what it means for us because of what Jesus Christ has done. The second thing is this, repent of our stubbornness and pride. Some of us, we have been dictator of our own pride and we want to control our own lives. And we're stubbornly holding on to things. And God is trying to break that stubbornness in you so that instead of mocking and jeering and scoffing at God, you can realize, God, I'm not God. I'm not you. You're great. You're awesome. So may you help me, strengthen me to follow you, to obey you. And lastly, is to recommit to the gospel. Let's make that our commitment, that we will recommit ourselves to the gospel message. What does that mean? It simply means that Jesus Christ is inviting us now to the kingdom of God. And to be a part of that, we let go of our own selves and our own control of things. And we're surrendering ourselves to God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we are just His citizens of this kingdom. We repent of our ways and we turn over to Him and give our allegiance to Him and Him alone. If we can live our lives in this way, then Easter, when you think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it gives us encouragement to live our lives because of who He is and what He has done for us. I want to close and show you some pictures of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And a lot of these different pictures of crucifixion has just been painted over the years. Now, one of the things you need to understand is that in the early years, they, they, there was no pictures of crucifixion because it was, in a sense, he, was, he died a criminal's death. So you don't see a lot of paintings or drawings about the crucifixion. But then over a period of time, over years, they began to draw pictures of the cross, but not with Jesus on it. Because once again, they, they see him as a resurrected king. So they didn't put a picture of Jesus on a cross. They just painted a cross. But as time passed by, they realized the significance of being able to see and to witness Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And it helps us in our faith to believe the suffering and the pain that Jesus went through. So here's some famous paintings, as you can tell. The first one you will notice here is the famous painting of Diego Velazquez. And he paints this picture of Jesus. And if you look at this painting carefully, you'll notice that there's a lot of just uh, cuts and bruises. And it, it was one of the most popular paintings of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Here's another famous picture by, by uh, the, the Italian painter, the famous Italian pa uh, painter G uh, Giotto, and he paints this picture, and this is kind of like the classic one that we see oftentimes in museums about Jesus Christ with that kind of like this sun thing around his head, the glowing Shekinah glory of God, and we see this painting of Jesus Christ being crucified with his arms stretched and his nails, the nails in his feet. And then you will see another one, which is the famous one by Rubens, and it is the painting called the Christ on the cross and it just helps us to picture what Jesus went through and we see even the people who are gathered around 
And then we see another one that's also pretty famous by the French uh, painter Paul Gauguin and this painting of the yellow Christ as it's called. And so all these are famous paintings about Jesus Christ and the crucifixion. But there is a famous painting that's greater than all of these paintings, at least in my opinion. And what it did was that it kind of came off from an inspiration from a sketch drawing about St. John on the cross. So I want to show this to you. So if you look at it, the reason why I think it's so powerful is it's an angle that you do not notice from all the other paintings. The other paintings just looking straight ahead. But this is a sketch of coming from an angle from the top almost to the left and looking at the stretched back of Jesus as his arms are stretched out and as he's pressing against and towards his feet. It was from this sketch that Salvador Dali, if you do not know this famous painter, he ended up painting one of the most famous pictures of Jesus Christ's crucifixion. Now, the thing that makes it so different from any other painting is the angle in which the crucifixion is painted. I want you to look at it right now. If you look at this painting, you realize it is almost coming from the view of God. If you look very carefully, his head is in the center of an upside-down triangle. It's that same idea of the back being stretched and arched because he's in pain. But I want you to notice something that I think is very powerful that you kind of miss if you don't pay attention to the whole thing. you got to be one of those guys who go to the museum and just stare at it for like 20 minutes. You know, those kind of people. But if you look at this, you realize why it's so powerful. Because if you look down on the bottom portion, what do you see? You will see this boat. Do you see it? And the significance of this is many of you who know the story is that that's where Jesus called the disciples, Peter and the sons of Zebedee. It was on this boat. So almost Salvador Dali painted this not only from the perspective of God and Jesus, his arched back and this cross, but he's almost telling the story once again of the gospel. That Jesus Christ came and he called the disciples. And then I want you to look just a little bit beyond the boat. You will notice all these mountains. And what he said was that when people asked him, he goes, these mountains and the things that you see behind are representative of all the nations and all the different terrains in this world. He's pretty much painting a picture of the world behind. And the reason why this story is so powerful from this painting is that that's how Jesus Christ called the disciples to leave their nets, to trust in Him, to surrender all because of what he, he is offering them, which is the kingdom of God. And then if you remember after the resurrection, especially even before that when He was being crucified, they all ran away in fear. Being a coward, that they all ran away. But we notice that when He rose again from the dead, Jesus said, what? To go therefore and make disciples of all nations, which is go to the ends of this earth and proclaim the gospel. And God is looking down as he sees his great sacrifice of the death of his son on the cross. But he has the mission and the purpose in mind. Can I ask us right now, when you think about your life, do you remember when God first called you? 
Do you remember where you were when you began to really understand the gospel? That in your pride, in your stubbornness, in your lack of trust in God, but you thought you could live on your own in your self-sufficiency, trusting in the things that you're able to do, but you realize you came to that point when there's nothing you can do and you needed God. Do you remember the time when he called you? Do you remember the mission that God has given you to go and make disciples of all nations? And the reason why this is important is God is looking down and through the lens of his sacrifice, Jesus Christ, and Jesus who gives us us this calling, the question and challenge for us is what are you going to do? When you think about the cross, when you think about the sacrifice, what are you going to do? Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.